now. This is our second week in our series, What's Next? And in our series, we're talking about what happens after we die or what happens if Jesus returns to this earth before we die. And I've gotten some interesting emails this week, uh, different kinds of questions. But you know, again, anytime I talk about death, we get the weebie-jeebies a little bit, right? And, uh, but I had to think, and uh, I was reminded uh, yesterday, it really is about perspective. Lars showed me this. She came across this. Let me go ahead and put that sign up. Being cremated is my last hope for a smoking hot body. See, again, again, see, it's all about perspective, just all about perspective. I also saw a T-shirt. This is what it said on the T-shirt. Life isn't too short. It's just that you're dead for so long. See, that's, 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 that's the problem. And that's actually biblical. That's a biblical perspective. Even James talks about that in the little book of James, the latter part of the New Testament. He says, you know, when you get right down to it, in the big scheme of eternity, in the big picture, life is like a vapor. I mean, on this earth, you may get 70, 80, 90, maybe even 100 years, but in the big scheme of things, it's just here and then it's gone, but eternity, eternity is forever. And since that's the case, in this series, we're diving in and we're seeing what the Bible has to say about what's next. And again, uh, it's important to understand it's, it's what the Bible says, because like I said, it's America. You can believe anything you want to believe, but according to the Bible, you are going to spend eternity in, in one of two places. You're either going to spend it in a place called heaven, or you're going to spend it in a place called hell. Last week, we we began by talking about heaven. This week, we're going to go to the other end of the spectrum, and we are going to talk about hell. And to be honest with you, I am shocked at how many of you have shown up this weekend, especially in the middle of the blizzard of 2016. You still made it here, so I want to thank you for that. But I will say this. If you showed up this weekend for the first time expecting the warm fuzzies, may not be the best weekend to be here. However, if you will just hang in there, if you will just listen over the next few minutes, you could actually learn something that could change your life forever. Uh, by the way, let me just go on record saying uh, I'm not one of those pastors who really enjoys talking about the topic of hell. And I say that because I grew up in like a free will Baptist, independent Baptist church where our pastors really enjoy talking about hell. And if that wasn't enough, they would bring in hired guns and we would have what we called revivals. And revivals meant that every night for seven or eight nights, you were going to go to church, which means that as a kid, I went to church more in one week than most of you will attend this year. Let's just be honest, right? So we would go, and this guy, they would always bring those hellfire and brimstone messages. And there was one evangelist, his name was Bobby Jackson. I think he came every year or every other year. And every time he came, he would give the same illustration of hell. It went something like this. Hell is like a Ferris wheel of flames. And once you're strapped in, you ain't getting off. And it would go on and on. And he would say, you're going to go round forever and ever, and there's a weeping in that Tennessee windsucker. There's a wailing, and there's gnashing teeth. And then he would throw this in, and the worm dieth not. That worm part freaked me out. I think I got saved again every year just to avoid that, that worm. I don't have that kind of passion to talk about hell. And I don't think Jesus actually enjoyed talking about hell, but you know, it's interesting. He talked about it a lot. In fact, Jesus preached, think about this, Jesus preached 33 messages on hell in just of three years of public ministry. That means that Jesus gave a message on hell almost once a month. I'm telling you, if Jesus had a church in care, you would not attend. Not if he was going to talk about hell that much. But I believe the reason that Jesus said so much about hell and taught so much about hell, he just wanted to make sure that nobody went there. But what's interesting is in our enlightened, politically correct age that we live in, hell now kind of falls into the same category as a flat earth or giant dragons, you know, or witch burnings. It's, it's considered to be archaic. 
It's out of date. It's kind of this imaginary place that doesn't really exist. But I think it's interesting that people still use the word hell as one of their favorite expletives. Have you noticed that? I mean, for example, when people are angry, they don't say, what in Holly Springs are you doing? See, they don't say that, right? They use the word hell. Or if you want to unload the ultimate insult, no one ever says, you know what? You go to Fuquay. See, nobody says that. They, they, they use the word hell. So either though we, even though we may want to ignore the word or maybe we just want to make light of it, this word still represents a term that carries an incredible sting in our vocabulary. So we're going to talk about hell. And I'll just kind of remind you as we get into this, and we'll see this next weekend as I, I answer the question, how could a loving God send someone to hell? I want you just to be reminded of the song we sang a few minutes ago. Because the bottom line is this, he loves you. Oh, how he loves you. And that's the message you got to hang on to. So if you have your Bible this morning, let's go to Luke chapter 16. And while you're turning there, let's, uh, let me just give you a little background. We're going to see what Jesus had to say about hell. And every indication, what we're going to be looking at, Luke chapter 16, it's a true story. I think it's an actual account, and let me tell you why. First of all, there's nothing that identifies this as a parable. Often it would say, then Jesus spoke a parable. There's nothing in, in, in here that says it's a parable. Second, it doesn't seem to be a simile. Often Jesus would say, something is like, heaven is like, but he doesn't do that here, so it doesn't seem to be a simile. Third, Jesus does something that he doesn't do in any parables. He talks about a specific or a certain rich man, and I don't know why the new NIV took that out, but in the Greek it literally says a specific or a certain rich man. It says a specific beggar, and Jesus even gives name to this person. He never did that in a parable. He said this was a real person. This guy's name was Lazarus, not the same Lazarus that Jesus raised from the dead, but Lazarus was a very popular name in the first century. But what I think we're looking at, what we're looking at over the next few minutes, I really believe with all my heart, it's an actual account. It's a real story of something that took place. The story begins as a study in contrast between, between two main characters. We have an unbelieving man who's rich. That's not an indictment on anybody who's rich. In just case, he happened to be rich. And then we have an unbelieving man who is poor. But we pick up the story, Luke chapter 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him away to Abraham's side. What did they carry away to Abraham's side? They carried his soul. They carried his spirit. And I'm sure that his body was carted away to the garbage heap. Uh, and, and it was burned with all the other trash of the city. That was pretty much practice for that day, but you, in those days. But if you pick it up in verse 22, it says, The rich man also died and was buried. It was probably a very elaborate you know, burial, probably had lots of flowers, maybe even some professional mourners, right? And it says in Hades, which really is just the Greek word for hell. And I'm not sure why Bible translators, as we'll see next week, they talk about Sheol, which is just the Hebrew translation for hell. And I'm not sure. I mean, if the Bible was written in Spanish... You know, and we got to the word water when we translated it to English and it said agua. You wouldn't say that's not water. Of course it's water. But this is Hades. This is referring to hell. Where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So understand, his body is buried, but his soul and spirit, that part of him that makes up his personality, that part of him that made up his conscience, you know, that part of him that gave him the ability to make decisions and to make choices, that invisible part of life that you cannot touch. This story tells us that part of him now is residing in Hades, verse 24. 
So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And notice Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. By the way, I want you to understand, when you look at Luke chapter 16, this is a phenomenal scene. It's as if God pulls back the curtain and he takes us into a place that no one has ever been before. And taking us into this secret scene, this secret place, he introduces us to information and he introduces us to scenery that absolutely defies our imagination. In Luke 16, we move into the eternal state. It is free from time. It is free from all the things that surround our kind of existence here on planet Earth. And as you look at this scene, as you look at this story, I find the answer, the response to four common misconceptions about hell. You've probably heard them. We've probably all heard them. Here's the first one. Hell is just something that ministers use to scare people. It's just something we do to get you to church, to manipulate you to do something, maybe eventually to separate you from your money, right? But it's just something that ministers use to scare people. When we die, we will feel and know nothing. We're just going to go off into a void, to a black mass somewhere, And that'll be the end of it. Well, let's see if that's true. Let's look at the story. Look at verse 23. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So that tells us that he could see in this conscious state. We read throughout this story that he was in agony and and torment, so that tells us that he can feel. He cries out to Abraham so he can speak. He hears Abraham's response. That tells us that he can hear. There's taste. He says, have Lazarus dip the tip of his finger in some water and cool my tongue. He still has his memory. Look at verse 25. Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. He answered, verse 27, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. So he remembers his life. He remembers what he did, what he didn't do. He remembers what's left behind on earth. And you'll notice his concern in verse 27. I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. So I want you to understand, hell's not just some place that ministers use to manipulate and control people. According to the Bible, according to Jesus, it is a real place. And let me just say this. You cannot believe in heaven and not believe in hell. Because when you get right down to it, the Bible mentions hell 162 times. Jesus preached on it 33 times. Jesus only talked about heaven, I think, seven times. So if you believe that heaven is a literal place, and you guys went out of here jacked up last week thinking about how great heaven's going to be, then you've got to accept the reality that hell is a real place. Second misunderstanding. If I go to hell, I'll be there with all my buddies. 
I actually had someone in a conversation tell me this week, and I hope it was kind of tongue-in-cheek. He said, you know, I think hell's getting a bad rap. Think of all the really fun people that are going to be there. I mean, is that really what hell's going to be like? Well, by the way, keep in mind that this story is describing hell before the resurrection of Jesus. As we saw last week, in, you know, about heaven, there's a, there was a temporary heaven. We saw that. And then there is a permanent heaven where God is going to restore this planet to, to heaven. And if you weren't here, go back and listen to that message. And this is where we will spend all eternity. There was also a temporary hell and there was a permanent hell. And before the resurrection of Jesus, every person that died, they went, they went to one of two areas. One of those areas was a place of torment. Torment. Here it's referred to as Hades. The other one was, was, was Abraham's side. Some places it's called uh, paradise. And it was kind of like a waiting room for Old Testament saints. Now think of it this way. We have a relationship with God made possible through Jesus Christ, but it's based on faith. What is our faith? That Jesus Christ, when he came 2,000 years ago, he came to this world as the Savior who could save those of us who need saving. That's what our faith is in. Jesus Christ is who he said he was. In the Old Testament, your faith was that one day the Messiah would come and he will be who the Father says he will be. And for those Old Testament saints who believe that and who walk by faith, they're in like this great waiting room at the center of the earth somewhere. And the Bible teaches that before Jesus ascended to heaven after the resurrection, he descended to the lower earth and he got those Old Testament saints and he took them to heaven. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 8. When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Verse 9. What does he ascended mean except he also descended to the lower earthly regions. What we're looking at in Luke 16 is that lower earthly region. It's Hades, but it's also Abraham's side, also sometimes referred to as paradise. That's why when Jesus was on the cross beside the thief, and the thief said what? Please remember me today, and Jesus said, I will remember you today in paradise. I will see you in paradise, and then we're gonna gather up everybody, and we're gonna go to heaven together, right? So understand, this is before the resurrection of Jesus, so we're looking at a temporary hell. But as I said, Jesus spoke 33 different times on hell. Matthew chapter 8 is one of those classic ones. And there Jesus talks about permanent hell. And as he describes permanent hell, he refers to it as a place of total darkness. And this Greek word that Jesus uses for darkness means the absolute absence of light. No light whatsoever. Ever been in total darkness? Only one time in my life have I come close to being in total darkness. Uh, it's the first time I went to the Central African Republic. I went with Carl. It was the poorest country on the planet. We got in the, in the Jeep. We drove for about 12 hours. We're right out in the middle of the rainforest in a little village called Bata. And we were doing some work there. We were putting in some, some panels and uh, some solar panels so they, they could heat water and do some things like that. And we were helping Jim Hawking. And that night, we slept in this little basically a pygmy hut and we got in there and, 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 and Carl and I we got in our sleeping bags and we hung our mosquito nets and Jim Hawking came in and even though our mosquito nets were already pushed up under our sleeping bags he began to really push them up under our sleeping bags I'm like what are you doing he's like, I got to get in there real tight I said these must be tough mosquitoes he says no he says it's black mamba season they really are on the move this time of year now a black mamba is a snake in the Central African Republic they call it the two-step snake it bites you, you take two steps, and you die. That's how poisonous the snake is. And he says, they seem to move around this time of the year. And then he said this, if you have to go to the restroom in the middle of the night, check your boots because they love to get inside your boots because it's warm. I'm like, I'm not getting out of this, this, this sleeping bag maybe till I die. It may be the resurrection, I don't know. But anyway, 
about three in the morning, nature called, right? And I lay there. I am not getting up. I am not. Finally, I'm like, I have got to get up. Be a big boy. So I reached over and I took my boots and I did this because I thought if there's a black mom in there, he'll, car, he'll crawl over to Carl, right? And so I, I dumped him out. And I put my boots on and I went out to where I was supposed to go to the restroom and I got my little flashlight on. It is I mean, it's, we're in the rainforest. We're under the canopy. On top of that, there's like no stars, no moon. And I'm out there, and I got this flashlight, you know, and it goes out. And I'm shaking it, and it will not come back on, right? And I can hear stuff moving in the weeds and through the, you know, I'm like, oh, what? And finally, it came, but I tell you, I'm like, mama, you know, Jesus, this would be a great time. Come quickly. We just sang about that, right? This is, Right? Finally, the light came back. But I'm telling you, when I was there, I could not see my hand in front of my face. Closest I've ever come to absolute darkness, total blackness, horrible feeling. But Jesus says that's what hell is like. No light, only darkness. We are talking about solitary confinement. We are talking about complete isolation. Hell is a place where, I said last week, it's a place where you'll have all eternity to think, wow, it didn't have to end up like this. It didn't have to go this way. You will have every opportunity in hell. I am convinced to remember every chance you had to follow Jesus, commit to Jesus, trust Jesus, accept God's free gift of salvation made possible through Jesus. By the way, one of the old songs that regardless of the church you grew up in, we all love to sing, it's amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And then we love that third stanza. I mean, we just really like to belt it out when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. Will no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Why would we have no less days? Because it's eternity. There is no end. It goes on forever and ever and ever. And I was, I was sitting in my office at home last week working on this message. This is what I wrote down because my guess is when somebody is in hell, at some point you'll have a thought like this. When I've been here 10,000 years in this blackness without the sun, I'll have no less days to be in this place than when I first begun. There is no reprieve. There's one inescapable factor that you will find in every reference to hell in the Bible. It's the absence of companionship. You will never see another person. You will never talk to another person. You will be terribly and horribly alone. We are talking total abandonment. There will be no sense of companionship with your buddies. You need to understand that. It's what the Bible teaches. According to the Bible, you will be all alone. Third misunderstanding. Hell will be a relief compared to the suffering I've endured on earth. I've actually had people to say that to me, even in counseling. Nothing could be as bad as what I've had to endure on this earth. And I, I want to be sensitive here because I realize some of you, as you sit and you hear my voice this weekend, you felt like when it came to life, you were just dealt a bad hand. Maybe you had a dysfunctional family and that, that, that led to some habits in your life that, and maybe some baggage that you seem to carry any, into every relationship and there, it's just, it just seems to be spinning out of control and there must be days where you think, wow, how could hell be any worse than this? Well, let's see if that's true. It's, in the, it's interesting, in this story, uh, there's the, the Greek word torment and it's, it's translated Twice torment, and the very same word twice is translated agony. In verse 23, it says, in Hades, where he was in torment. There's our word. In verse 24, send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony. It could have been torment in this fire. 
Verse 25, but Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. There's our word again, verse 28. I have five brothers, let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And this Greek word torment, if you were to look it up in a Greek dictionary, just like often we look up a word in the English and it has more than one meaning, maybe three meanings. This word has three meanings. The first meaning is Acute pain from debilitating disease. It was used that way. Second, it was used to describe an implement designed to torture. It was actually, it was actually a rack that had spikes. And as you were stretched over time, you, eventually the spikes would begin to cut into you. It was to torture you. And then third, it, was, it, was to, it described fire that was hot enough to melt metal. Now understand, that's the word that Jesus uses here. So I think it's safe to say it's a distressing scene. And a lot of people say, well, even commentators today will say, well, this is not a literal fire with a literal hell. And someone asked me last night, how can it be total darkness and fire? I don't know. There is a God and I'm not him. I'm pretty sure God can, you know, whatever he wants to do, he can pull that off. But if you go back to the message in in Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus describes hell as a place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. See, that came from Jesus. And it's interesting, Jesus used a word for hell no one else ever used. But when Jesus used this Greek word for hell, all of his Jewish audience knew exactly what he was talking about. Jesus uses the word Gehenna. He uses it 11 times in the gospel. Gehenna was a reference to the valley of Henna in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it was referred to as the valley of Hinnom, H-I-N-N-O-M. It was located just outside of Jerusalem. I'll be in Jerusalem with some of you in the next few weeks uh, as we take a trip over there, and, and you will see the valley of Gehenna. And in the first century, there was always a fire burning to burn the trash from the city. Even when James, in the book of James, he talked about the tongue is like a fire he used the word Gehenna. So James knew about it. Jesus knew about it, right? And this, this fire burned all the time, and it burned the trash. And when people didn't have enough money to be buried, they would burn their bodies in the valley of Gehenna. And when a criminal was executed, they would take them down off the cross, and they would burn their bodies in the valley of Gehenna. So it's a terrible place. But Old Testament historians tell us that something even worse happened in this valley, And you may remember reading about this. In the Old Testament, the Israelites practiced something that they learned from the Babylonians and the Chaldeans. And they began to offer up children to the God of Molech. And we know that two Old Testament Israeli kings did this. Manasseh practiced this. Ahab practiced this. They burned their children in the valley of Hinnom. And and to do this, you actually would make your children walk into the fire alive. There are even accounts of, of using whips to drive the children into the fire. And these young children would be in such pain, such agony, such turmoil, turmoil uh, torment as they had to walk into this fire. Guess what? They'd be weeping and wailing and grinding of teeth. And when Jesus described hell to this Jewish audience, this is what he said. Hey, guys, you want me to tell you a picture of hell? It's like Gehenna. And they were like, oh, yeah, Gehenna. Where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. It was almost as if Jesus was saying, I am doing everything I can to help you understand what this place is like so that you don't go there. Now, I want to be sensitive to you. I know for some of you, life is hard, but I don't care how bad your life is. It will not even remotely begin to compare to this place called hell. And can I just say one more time, and I'll mention this more, God did not ever prepare hell for people. Isaiah chapter eight, 
the book of Revelation where it talks about Satan was kicked out of heaven with a third of the angels and, and they were thrown down to earth as a lightning bolt. Many people believe that that's really when hell began. It was created for Satan and his fallen angels, the ones that followed him. But it tells us in Isaiah chapter 8 that it had to be enlarged because so many people decided to reject God. Let me mention it again. God did not prepare hell for us, but he did prepare heaven for us. So keep that perspective in mind. Fourth misunderstanding. After I've served my time in hell, somebody will pray me out. No. Look what it says in verse 26. Abraham says, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot. I want you to understand something because some of you have been mistaught. In God's plan, there is no purgatory. There's nothing in the Bible about purgatory. There is no reincarnation. There is no second chance. There is no hope for relief. There is no time off, there time off for, for good behavior. None of that. This is what it says in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 11. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night. But there's one other thing I get out of this story. When this rich man, when he becomes aware of his eternal doom, he is instantly concerned about his brothers. And my guess is, you know, throughout life, he's only thought about one person himself. We know that he didn't care about Lazarus, the beggar at his door. My guess is he didn't really care about life as it pertained to anyone else. Life was all about him. But all of a sudden in hell, he realizes that life has a dimension that he missed. And all of a sudden, he cares about those who are still living. And his request in verse 27, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. In other words, bring Lazarus back from the dead so he can visit my brothers back home. And when they see Lazarus, they'll believe. Do whatever you can to make sure my brothers don't come to this place. But you'll notice in verse 29, Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Meaning this, they already have the word of God. And we know at this time they had the Old Testament. He was saying this, they have what Moses wrote. They had what the prophets wrote. They have what David wrote. They have what Solomon wrote. They have all of those great historical books that make up the Old Testament. Let them read the word of God. Verse 30, no father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, now this is interesting, they will repent. I'll tell you what's interesting about that. Repentance isn't mentioned anywhere in this story. But in hell, this guy finally gets it. The problem is it's too late. He realizes in hell that he missed the point of his life on earth as far as it related to his spiritual dimension of life, and it was all about repentance. It was about changing his mind. Now, this is what repentance means. It means changing one's mind. It means doing a 180. Changing one's mind concerning Jesus. You have to get to that point in your life where you realize Jesus was not just a historical figure. Jesus wasn't just a great teacher. See, that's, that's the way you're going. You get to the point where you repent, you do a 180 concerning Jesus, and you realize, oh yeah, he really did come as God in the flesh to be our Savior because we need saving. You get to that point where you realize I need saving. And the only way that I'm going to get reconciled back to God and have an eternal home in heaven is by allowing the Savior to save me. It's when you get to the point where you realize it's not about what I do and can do to get back in a relationship with God. It's about what Jesus Christ has done for me. I repent. I change my mind concerning who Jesus Christ is. And all of a sudden... He says, if Lazarus were to come back, 
they would change their mind about that. Verse 31, but Abraham said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. I think a lot of people believe that's teaching that, well, even if Lazarus did go back, they wouldn't believe him. But watch, Jesus is actually sneaks one in here. This is what he really says. This is a direct reference that Jesus was saying that one day someone will rise from the dead. I will actually die and I will actually rise from the dead. And Jesus says, I'm telling you, there will still be people who do not believe. And let me just say this because Easter will be here before you know it. There, there, there is more historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead than there is for a lot of historical stuff that many people believe. There are stuff that you've learned in history you just took as fact. And there's actually as much fact, if not more, that Jesus actually rose from the dead, but you've got to take the time to check it out. There's plenty of evidence out there if anybody wants to believe. Do you know what that tells me? It tells me that God's word, the Bible, is more powerful than any supernatural phenomenon. When you open the Bible, when you read the Bible, when you hear from the Bible, you are getting greater evidence. You are getting more persuasive information than you would ever get from an angelic visit, than you would ever get from reincarnation, communicating with the dead, even bringing somebody back from the dead. Nothing is more powerful than God's word. It is all you need, it is all I need, it is all anyone needs to be brought to a point of repentance, changing one's mind concerning who Jesus is. Now I want to leave you with a couple of thoughts that I get from this this story. Here's the first one. And I I picked these applications because I I told you, I, 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 I became a Christian at five because I didn't want to go to hell. And I'm not sure it really kicked in until I was 18, the decision I had made. But see, if you make an emotional decision because you don't want to go to hell, it won't be the right decision. You'll forget it by tomorrow. Like, what was I thinking, you know? So let me just give you some practical application. The Bible is the most important evidence a person can examine. So I know what some of you are thinking right now. I don't believe any of this stuff. I mean, what kind of a nut job believes that There's a mystical place called heaven and a bad place called hell and Jesus came to this earth and he died and he rose again. What kind of nut job buys stuff like that? I don't believe it. And again, my response is America. That's your right. I would simply give you an assignment and it would be this. Don't waste your time studying other world religions. Don't waste your time asking for miracles. Don't waste your time asking for signs. Don't expect some supernatural phenomenon to take place. Just make a study of the Bible. Just start there. Just make a study of the Bible. Launch a study program on your own. You say, well, I don't even have a Bible. You go by our next step tent, we'll give you a Bible, brand new Bible. And, And if you ask them, they will help you find the Gospel of John. By the way, the Bible is not a book. It is actually a collection of 66 books that were written over a couple of thousand years. That's what makes it so amazing that they all pointed to the same thing. They all verified the other books written over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. But we will, we will show you where the Gospel of John is, the book of John. It is without a doubt the most read book in the entire world. And just sit down and begin to read the Gospel of John, the account of Jesus Christ, his life in the Gospel of John. Just start there, see what it does in your life. But if you say, Mike, I've tried to read the Bible. Oh, I don't make, it doesn't make any sense to me. Well, let me recommend a book. You can go on Amazon and get it. Let's just put that slide up. It's called Sense and Nonsense About Heaven and Hell. It's less than $10. 
sense and nonsense about heaven and hell. You can order it. You'll have it by Tuesday. You can read that book alongside your Bible. It would really, really help the Bible come on these two topics. But just, just, just start reading it. You know, let the evidence say what it says and see what God does in your heart as a result of the study of his word, the Bible. Here's the second application I would leave you with. The Bible is the most compelling information to prepare us for life after death. It's the Bible. In fact, as you begin to see what the Bible says about death, you know what you'll find? You'll find that your fears are calmed. You'll begin to discover that your panic is removed. You'll begin to see that your confusion is lifted. Because finally you'll begin to understand that there is an eternal dwelling place called heaven for people who know Jesus Christ, who are in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And this is what you'll also discover. Because see, God's God's gotten a bum rap. What you'll discover in studying the Bible is that God's arms are wide open. Wide open. And you'll discover that Jesus' death is sufficient for you to be in a relationship with God. Are you stressed out? Do you get kind of anxious when you think about what's next? You know. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, and I'll close with this. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, all of you who are anxious and stressed out. And he says, I will give you rest. You don't need supernatural phenomenon. You don't need miracles. You don't even need an emotional experience. What you need is the hope of an eternal home with God made possible through Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say? We looked at the verse last week, John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to get to the Father, that place that I'm going to prepare for you that he just talked about a few verses earlier, he said, you're going to have to go through me. That's what you need. And once that's in place, once that's taken care of, it is amazing what it will do to your whole perspective regarding life and death. Now, I think it's time for me to shut up and let God work. How about that? So let's just bow our heads together. My guess is some of you sitting here, you have heard for the very first time these truths regarding an eternal destiny without Jesus Christ. According to the Bible, this is what it teaches. Without Jesus Christ in your life, your only other option is this place called hell. It is the ultimate destiny for those who refuse to believe. And next week, we're going to answer that age-old question, how could a loving God send somebody to a place this bad, right? And I'll be honest with you, it bothers me. I wouldn't have planned it this way. But the only way you can answer biblical questions is with the Bible. So we're going to dig in next week. And I'm going to tell you ahead of time, that's actually a pretty easy question for me to answer from the Bible. Here's the more difficult question for me. How can anyone reject a loving father? That's the one I can't explain. And God has done everything he possibly can through his son, Jesus Christ, to make sure that you don't go to this place called hell. But I'll tell you this, and I'll go ahead and give you a preview to next week. God didn't send anybody to hell. If you go to hell, it will because you make the choice to go there. This is what it says, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. 
God is not willing that any should perish, but that everyone comes to repentance. And he's provided the way. It's up to you. And this may sound mean and insensitive, but hey, I hope what we've talked about over these past few minutes, I hope they haunt you. I hope those words trouble you. And as a friend, I hope you don't find any peace in your life till you find peace with God. Father, I pray right now for those who are like, hmm, they're right on the fence. I pray that they would think clearly. I pray that they would act responsibly. And I pray that they would walk out of here with peace today. Because I'm, you know, Father, and I know this is the only way you will ever find true peace. So as bad as this topic is, thank you for it. Because no one can walk out of here now saying that they don't know. We know. But the choice is up to us. Thank you for giving us a free will. In your name we pray. Amen.